Hello, I'm Charles Cooper, and welcome to Kingdom Alive, a teaching ministry about the soon-coming royal reign of Jesus Christ. In this session, I continue my series, Disciples, Disciple, Understanding the Gospel of God. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 report the essence of the gospel of God. It includes three pillars. The first pillar defined the time human history is marching in. It's the time of God's jubilee. God has set men free from the imprisonment of sin. Those who believe in Jesus are free from the penalty, punishment, and the ever-present need to sin. The second pillar is the announcement that the kingdom of God has come within man's reach. What is the kingdom of God? This is the question that we will answer in this session. What is the kingdom of God? Part 2. Bibles open, minds engaged, less study. Now, if you've been part of our 9 o'clock uh, study, you know that we are under disciples, disciple, understanding the gospel from God the Father. Now, the last couple of uh, months, I've really spent trying to unlearn you some teachings that you probably have been taught, as I had. Um, it's not really... A secret that we were basically taught to emphasize salvation by faith through grace, having come out of the dark ages where the gospel was not preached. For almost a thousand years, men and women did not hear the message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It was locked away in the vault of Catholicism under the Latin mass. If you couldn't read Latin, which the overwhelming majority of people couldn't, you could not read the Bible because the Bible was only in Latin, the Vulgate by Jerome. The only people able to read Latin was the priest, and you were left to the mercy of the priest as to what he would read and what he would preach if he was going to teach a lesson. So effectively, men and women, for 1,000 years, from the time that Constantine made Christianity the official religion of Rome, he, in thinking that he was doing a good thing, actually did a very bad thing. Because by making Christianity the state religion, the government had the right to define what Christianity is. And it slowly began to die to the point that the Roman Catholic Church, now the official religion of Rome, took away from the people, the masses, the ability to read the Bible for themselves. It would be a thousand years it would be in the 1400s that a man by the name of Martin Luther went to Rome, having been sent there. 
He got to Rome and he could not believe the evil, the ungodly, wicked behavior of the church in Rome. He was so disappointed. Luther was so heartbroken by the sin that was engulfing the church in Rome that he came back and pretty much set it as his mission to free the gospel from the vault of darkness. And in doing so, of course, you know, came out of that what we now call the Reformation. The Reformation set the gospel of Christ free, but it did not set free the gospel of God. And as a result, the gospel of God is very much not part of the vocabulary of man. We don't even know what it is. Many don't separate or divide or see the significance of that phrase because for the, for the most part, it has become part of the vocabulary of the church. After John, this is Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. In your Bible, it probably says gospel of God. The CSB says the good news of God. And then he delineates what the three components of the gospel of God is. Number one, the time is fulfilled. Number two, the kingdom of God has come near. And number three, repent and believe the good news. These are the three elements of what is called the gospel of God. Now, the obvious thing that he talked about first is he determined what time it is. He told us, according to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, as Jesus read it, when he started his ministry, he told us that we have effectively entered into the year of God's jubilee. He told us that Jesus Christ announced that God had anointed him to come to this earth and to preach the release. And then he gives a list to release the poor with the good news of the gospel, to release the captives, to release those who were imprisoned by the demonic spirits, to release from sickness, and to announce the favorable year of the Lord. In my book that will be out, I go into great detail about the Jubilee and the fact that you have been released from the prison of sin, that you have been put free. The year of Jubilee was every 50 years, and if you were an economic slave, if you had sold yourself into slavery, or if you had leased your land because of poverty, at 50 years, every year, year of Jubilee, all your debts were forgiven. Didn't matter how much you owed, it was supposed to be forgiven. If you had done any wrong, that is, if you had accidentally killed someone and you had to flee to another city called a city of refuge, at the 50-year mark, didn't matter how long you'd been there, sometime if you'd killed them in year 49, you could be released from it in year 50. Or if you had killed them in year 20, you had lived there 30 years, you could finally go back to your home and you could not be attacked by the person or family who thought you killed their loved one 
uh, incorrectly, the year of Jubilee was a big deal because it set people free and released them from the captive bondage of the day. And when Jesus came preaching his ministry, actually, as close as I can account, Jesus actually began his ministry in a year of Jubilee. Unfortunately, Israel stopped obeying it, didn't keep it, because economics forced people to be greedy and not set people free as God had intended. The year of Jubilee, fantastic information that we will get to at a later time. In Luke chapter 3, verse 3, we are told that he, that is Jesus, went into all the vicinity of Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the release of sins. Now, you need to know that this word forgiveness is actually the word release. He preached a baptism of, for the release from sins. You are no longer held prisoner by your sins. You're no longer economically deprived of the joy of freedom because you couldn't afford to go to the temple and pay all the animals, give all the animals, give all the sacrifices, do all the things that you had to do in order for God to see your sins forgiven. It was economically impossible. You didn't have enough sheep. You didn't have enough flour. You didn't have enough doves in order to cover all your sins. You were released from that sacrificial system because of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ that delivered you now into your year of freedom. This is the message that Jesus Christ came and that Jesus Christ gave. We call it the gospel of Christ. Luke chapter 24 reminds us that Jesus told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, Jesus was resurrected 50 days earlier. Uh, excuse me, 40 days earlier. It's now been 40 days since Jesus was resurrected from the dead. They don't know it, but Jesus, when he told them this, is within minutes of going to be taken up into heaven out of sight, not to be seen in that way again until he returns. Now, they didn't know that he was leaving on that very day when he told them this. But he's standing there, he's talking to them, and he's telling them, rehearsing, he had told them this before. But now he tells it, he tells it to them again because he wants to give them a new piece of information. It says, it continues... Then, um, he says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, this is important. For three and a half years, Jesus had been teaching his disciples. But they were not able to understand what he was teaching them because God wouldn't allow them to. He did not open their minds to understand the fullest appreciation of what Jesus was saying. Very limited in what God would allow them to understand. I don't understand fully why other than I think they would have probably deserted Jesus and refused to be with him if they had known what was coming. So God did not open their minds to understand the scriptures until Jesus 
is about to actually leave the earth. The text then tells us, it continues, he also said to them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, he actually had told them before, but they didn't understand it because their minds were closed. Where in the Old Testament does it say that the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day? Because he says, this is what is written. He means in the Old Testament that the Messiah will suffer, which means to die, Pasco, he became the Paschal lamb, the death lamb, and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations starting at Jerusalem. So you got a, you got a lesson when you go home to find it. Find where in the Old Testament it says this, because he says it, says it that the Messiah is going to die and on the third day rise from the dead. A little homework for you, uh, just to uh, keep you. You are witnesses of these things, and look, I'm sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. So Jesus says, my, my dad's going to send the Holy Spirit. You need to go sit at night. It's going to be 10 days. 10 days from this day will be Pentecost, and a spirit will be poured out, and he will come upon them as God promised. And once he does, they're going to have this phenomenal experience about what God wants. So after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He told them what time it is. The time is fulfilled. All the obligations under your penalty of sin has been revoked. And then number two, the kingdom of God has come near. Now, this is where you've been trying to get to for two months. What is the kingdom of God? Because this is the good news. Understanding what the kingdom of God is ought to be your number one objective in life. Nothing is more important than the answer to that question. It alone is the reason you're here today. It's the reason you go to church. It's the reason you seek to be holy. It's the reason you seek to live godly life. It's the reason that you understand. See, the, the people coming out of the era of Christ slowly begin to lose a clear insight into what he was saying. And because they did, they ended up abusing it. People don't understand why the monastics, why the monks, they, they don't understand why the Catholic Church set up monasteries, why they had monks and nuns 
while people made these vows of poverty. Now we read this and think, ah, that's kind of nice, but there was a reason why they were doing it. It was because they misunderstood what the kingdom of God is. And in their attempt to do what they thought he said do, they decided that it required the monastic way of life rather than a commitment to a goal that God imposed on the life of every believer. Every believer really is a monk. Every believer. If you understand what the gospel of God is. The level of dedication and the level of which you live your life demands that you must if you are going to be serious about your faith. Our, our English term kingdom is pretty much limited to geography. When we hear the word kingdom, we, we think of a country. And we think of a, of a geographical boundary of that country. So the kingdom of Great Britain, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of the United Arab Emirates, of those countries that have the word kingdom in their name, we think geography, okay? When the average English speaker hears the term kingdom, he or she immediately thinks geography. Sadly, a majority of New Testament scholars agree that in the New Testament, the noun basilia, which is the Greek word for kingdom, when coupled with God, is essentially an abstract noun referring to the rule or kingship of God. Okay? The word kingdom does not emphasize geography at all. There's only one time actually in the New Testament when the word kingdom is referring to a geographic area. Only once. In every other use of this term, it is talking about the rule, the kingship, the, the authority of a king, his exercising of his dominion. So you need to get into the habit of thinking. When you read in your New Testament and you see the word kingdom, you need to automatically make your mind focus on not geography, but on rule, R-U-L-E, the rule, not role, rule. Now, you know my favorite, one of my favorite uh, scholars, Dr. I. Howard Marshall, who uh, was professor in England, whom I wanted desperately to study under. But I got married, had a family, had to give up my dreams. <laughs> Dr. I. Howard Marshall, brilliant man, very capable uh, man. Now, this is what he said. There is a growing agreement that the phrase kingdom of God, KG, should be taken to refer primarily to God's sovereignty rather than to the realm over which he is sovereign. 
So it's, it's the difference between realm, R-E-A-L-M, and the rule. The word kingdom can be one of two things, realm or rule. When the New Testament uses the word kingdom, it's talking about the rule, not the realm. And you can you probably can understand why if I if if I ask you. Okay. Now, um, as far back as 1902, a man by the name of Dalman wraps both the Old Testament, Malkut. Malkuth is the Hebrew word for kingdom, okay? Malkuth and the New Testament word basilia in this conclusion when he writes. Now, why you say, why, why are you telling us all this? Because I want you to know why your Bible was written and every word in it is important. Now, you don't have to know the Greek or the Hebrew. It's not necessary. But I do want you to know that the basis of what you believe has authentic, valid, biblical basis. We're not just pulling this stuff out of the air. Okay? Now, Dalman, 1902, which I can give you a copy of his article because it's brilliant. He writes that in the Old Testament, Jewish literature, and in Jesus' teachings, Malkut, when applied to God, means always kingly rule, never the kingdom as if it were meant to suggest the territory governed by him. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, listen, whenever you see the word kingdom, think the rule, the kingly rule of God, not the territory over which he rules. Because God is the king of the earth. So there is no limitation to his rule in terms of geography. He rules the universe. Everything that is, is under the authority of God. So to, to speak of it in terms of limitation, some little geographical area would be to minimize or to misunderstand the rule of God. In 1988, Joel Marcus published an excellent article, which I highly recommend, entitled Entering into the Kingly Power of God. Uh, take a picture of the screen. Um, when you're at home and one night when you're laying in bed and you can't sleep and nothing will help you sleep, um, look up this article. And then it will help you go to sleep. <laughs> it's, it's pretty tough. It's, 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 very, it's a very important article. It's very good. It's written at a... 10th, 11th grade level. Okay. Joe Marcus published an excellent article, which he highly recommended, entitled Entering into the Kingly Power of God, in which Mr. Marcus concludes this. Relying especially upon exegesis of Jewish parallels and of the first category of Jesus' sayings, many 20th century interpreters have claimed that the predominant meaning of Malakuta which is the Hebrew word for king, and basilia, the Greek word, in Jesus' teaching is reign, rule, sovereignty, dominion, kingdom power, rather than realm. 
So what's he saying? He's saying, listen, the word does not refer to geography, the realm. It refers to the authority that a king has over his subjects or dominion. And you can translate it reign, the reign of God. So it, it could be called the, instead of the kingdom of God, it could be called the reign of God or the rule of God or the sovereignty of God, the dominion of God, the kingly power of God. It's referring to what he is exercising and the authority that he exercises rather than the realm. When Dalman's favorite translation, while Dalman's favorite translation is sovereignty, so instead of the phrase kingdom of God, he would just translate it sovereignty. Marcus prefers kingly power. I'm going to use sovereign administration. So when I translate the New Testament for you, you you're going to see the word sovereign administration. Because I want you to think biblically what it is that he's talking about so that you will understand what it is that Jesus Christ is calling you to. So, by using the sovereign administration of God, because that's what it is, the sovereign, in other words, God is in control. He is the authority. He is the power. He is the exerciser of dominion. It's the administration. It's the sovereign administration are the rule of God, when God will rule on the earth, okay? The sovereign administration of God, we emphasize the active role God is now playing in the day-to-day -day running of this world through his son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, and those whom the Father gives to him. Now, you probably don't yet understand why important this is. I understand. It may be kind of just going over your head, but if you hang with me, by using the sovereign administration, we're emphasizing the active rule, the active role God is now playing in the world. All, well, it's always somebody. The overwhelming majority of scholars know that the sermon that Jesus preached is the kingdom of God. The, the title of the book is That Other Gospel, Understanding the first sermon of Jesus, okay? The first sermon that Jesus preached for three years was 
the good news of the sovereign administration of God. It is so important to you. How can something so important to you, you don't even know? It got buried in the vault of Catholicism and has not recovered. The Catholics robbed us of the purpose of life. Luther came along preaching, hey, you need to be saved by faith, which is great, but that wasn't all. And the sad reality, ladies and gentlemen, now is that most people think the goal is to just go to heaven when you die. That, I mean, that's what churches started preaching. After Luther and after the preachers started being able to preach from the English Bible, they started preaching salvation. Turn or burn. Repent or perish. you got to shake or bake. And so everybody was scared of going to hell when they die. Jonathan Edwards, what was Jonathan Edwards' favorite sermon? He preached it more than probably 3,000 times, one sermon. Yeah, sinners in the hand of an angry God. He preached that sermon more than 3,000 times. He would get on a horse, ride to a, a town, preach that one sermon. Everybody from everywhere would come to hear it, and people would be weeping and just can wait to know how to get saved because of how he described the anger of God on sinners. And so even when, I bet you when a lot of you got saved, they had thing, in my church, they had a thing called the mourner's bench. And you had to sit on that bench and you had to wait until you got the Holy Ghost. <laughs> and they would make you sit there, Doc. And, and wow, hot, didn't matter whether, how hot it was. You had to sit there and people would get saved just to get off of that thing. What? Tell me what I need to do to get up out of here. Because one, it was embarrassing. Number two, the old people made you sit there with grease on you and uh, Vaseline and lard smeared all over you. It, 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 was, it was terrible. But they said you had to get saved because you didn't want to go to hell when you die. And the preacher would just preach that you're going to go to hell and you're going to burn forever. And people say, I don't want to burn forever. And so the gospel of Christ became the dominant teaching of the church. And that's all that people preach. It's all that people would preach is about how to be saved. So you won't go to hell when you die. Which is which is true, but that is not the only gospel. That is the gospel of Christ. But there is something far more important to which Jesus says this. I, he did, um, uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 16. Get, somebody got a Bible. Who, who, who got the Bible? Luke chapter 16, verse 16. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees as they're out there. And um, they are attacking him and asking him, 
when is the kingdom of God going to come? And how will they know that it's come? And Jesus is going to say, listen, the kingdom of God doesn't come with a big explosion. There's not going to be this cataclysmic thing and there's going to be political upheaval and all. He said, no, 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 no. In fact, he said the kingdom of God is already among you. Someone has Luke 16, 16. What does it say? Forces his way into it. My great-grandmother used to wear her hair just like you wear your hair. She used to look just like you look. Wow. Um, who are you? Where are you from, woman? Um, oh, my great-grandma. Lord, have mercy. Jesus says, until John was the law and the prophets, but since John, that is, John was the last Old Testament prophet of that kind. And then it says in Mark chapter 14, yes, thank you. The law and prophets were until John. Since then, from John, the good news of the kingdom of God. That is the, the key New Testament phrase. The good news of the kingdom of God is the gospel of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. That is the CSB, right? Yes, CSB. Because in her version, the only ordained authoritative one, is what she read. <laughs> what is, what's your name, honey? Yes. Miss Lily, Lily, I appreciate you. Um, don't you go anywhere. <laughs> you sit right there until I tell you to move. Uh, <laughs> now, Miss Lily read from the, the King James, which is the spied version. Violent, he says. They're violently trying to get in. Now, the, the, ES, the CSB has got it right because this translation has always been a problem. People didn't know how to translate it, and it was confusing as to what it was that is what's saying. The verb is biazitai, biazitai. The verb biazitai can be understood as a middle or a passive. The active biazo is constrained force. It means to constrain a force. The middle says to empower by force or press hard or to act with violence. The passive is to be hard pressed, to be overpowered, says Dr. I. Howard Marshall, my, my guy. They always write scholarly. It, it means, in the active, it means to, to be violent, to take it, which is how they translate it in the, the uh, King James, they, they said, and men take it by force is how they translate. But it, it doesn't mean that. It actually means it's in the South, it was southernized to mean 
everybody ought to make every effort to enter in. In other words, you, you, you ought to be hard-pressed to enter in. It ought to be your number one goal, your number one objective. This is what this word means. It means that you, everyone, is hard-pressed to enter into it. In other words, this ought to be the single focused goal of your life to enter into the kingdom because, ladies and gentlemen, it's not automatic. It's not automatic. You don't just get it because you're a nice person. In fact, if you haven't heard the previous lessons, you need to go and find them because in there I showed you how there are seven conditions to enter the kingdom. Seven. And the hardest one is that you have to suffer to enter. To enter into the rule in order to win the right to be a king in the coming kingdom, you must suffer. You must put away from your life everything that is keeping you from undiluted devotion. To Jesus Christ. See, this is what the Jews couldn't understand. They, Jesus didn't make any sense because they were expecting Jesus, since he said he was a Davidite, they were expecting him to come, overthrow the Roman Empire, set up a kingdom of the Jews over which David or a man like David would rule. And they kept asking him, when are you going to restore the kingdom? Matter of fact, on the last day before he was taken up into the air, they asked him, is it now that God is going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said, that's none of your business. It's, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but you ought to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And then God will do that later, he says. Now, what was Jesus telling them? Jesus said, listen. I had to die to win the right to be king in my kingdom, which my father gave me. In order for me to be a king in it, I had to die. You too will die. What's your goal as being a Christian? Your goal is to win the right to rule with Christ in his coming kingdom. That is the goal of the Christian life. Your, your goal is to win the right to sit on the throne with him because it is not automatic. Nothing else is important. Nothing else, everything you do in life, who you marry, your marriage, your kids, your job, 
everything that you got is to be used as a means to help you earn the right to hear him say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. Come, I will make you ruler over many. But you will not get the right to rule if you have not earned it by how you lived now. Thanks to each of you for joining me in this study. Visit KingdomAlive.us. That's www.KingdomAlive.us for more information. Please tell a friend and join us next time. Until then, train to rain.